0: You ain't heard nothing
1: yet. Get around,
0: let me Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Straight out of the I don't know who you are. Why, so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, yes. I'm better. He's the lion! Snap out of it! If he me Mr. Oh, boy's best friend, this is my boy. You have no style. You're going bark all day, little dog. You're Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a
1: bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. If this is your first episode and you haven't listened to any of the others, welcome. For the month of September and this one week in October since I counted wrong, we've been looking into the film studios known as the Big Five of Hollywood's Golden Age. This week, we're covering the smallest, the youngest, and the only defunct member of the Big Five, RKO Pictures. Known for its musicals and later low-budget horror films, RKO's place in film history is cemented by its contributions to the industry as a whole. A young Orson Welles began his career at RKO at 25, bringing the world citizen Kane. The film AFI declares as the best film ever made. It also gave the world King Kong, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, Lucille Ball, and Katherine Hepburn. Until the ownership of a troubled multimillionaire led to the studio's eventual downfall, RKO Pictures was a force to be reckoned with. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. When Warner Brothers Studios gave the movies a voice in October of 1927 with The Jazz Singer, Hollywood immediately converted virtually all productions to sound overnight. Owning the patent on an advanced sound on film system called Photophone, the Radio Corporation of America, RCA, had hoped to join the motion picture business to implement their own machine to its fullest potential. One problem, Warner Brothers and Fox, two other members of the Big Five, had already implemented different sound systems with Western Electric's Vitaphone via Warner and Photophone via 20th Century Fox. Though many of the studios agreed to eventually use Fox's sound-on-film system, in order to ensure that all theaters going forward would be able to play every studio's films, RCA still wanted to find a studio that would use their system. Legend has it that RKO was born in October of 1928 at an oyster bar in Manhattan by two of the most powerful men of the era. Radio Baron David Sarnoff, president of RCA, and Joseph P. Kennedy, a.k.a. JFK's father, owner of Studio and Distributor Film Booking Offices of America, hatched a plan for getting the photophone into theaters. Sarnoff searched for a chain of theaters to acquire, in order to compete with the bigger studios, who by the late 20s had all owned their own for at least a decade, with the intention of converting them for Photophone Exhibition. The Keith Albee Orpheum chain, known for its vaudeville shows, was looking into converting their fledgling theaters into movie palaces. Kennedy purchased the chain in 1926, and in early 1928, RCA acquired Kennedy's stock in both FBO and KAO. On October 23, 1928, RCA announced that they had merged Keith Albee Orpheum with Kennedy's FBO to form RKO, R for radio, the KO from Keith Orpheum, forming the first Hollywood motion picture studio created for making sound pictures with Sarnoff as chairman of the board. The first head of production for RKO was William LeBaron, who had been the head of production at FBO. LeBaron had a musical theater background, specifically on Broadway, where he wrote musical scores and lyrics for shows. It should come as no surprise, then, that the first major releases of RKO Pictures were musicals. Their first released film, though the second to be produced, was 1929's Syncopation. Shot in New York and based on the novel Stepping High by Gene Markey, the film told the story of a husband and wife team, Benny and Flo, and their trials and tribulations trying to succeed in show business. The film was the first made with RCA's photophone process, and luckily for RKO, turned a profit. The studio would produce 13 more films in 1929, their first major hit being 1929's Rio Rita, another musical, which also featured several technicolor sequences. Not forgetting their roots in radio, one of RKO's first big signings was that of radio host and musician Rudy Valli. One of the biggest musicians in the United States at the time, particularly among housewives, Rudy had never professionally acted, but his charisma got him through the first few years. Anyway, RKO was banking more on his name to make money than his acting prowess. His first film with RKO, 1929's The Vagabond Lover, ended up being the fourth most profitable film for RKO that year. While it received overall positive reviews from critics, one review published in Motion Picture Magazine was less than kind, claiming that the movie, quote, should refute the theory apparently held by picture producers that a celebrity in any line is good movie material. Valley himself was quoted in 1980 saying he did not like his performance and that they were, quote, still fumigating the theaters where it was shown. Rio Rita Life is sweeter,
0: Rita
1: After the success of Rio Rita, RKO made several very expensive musicals that also implemented Technicolor sequences. By 1931, however, audiences had grown tired of them. 1930 alone had seen the release of 80 Hollywood musicals, while 1931 saw only 11. This left RKO in a bit of a bind, as they still had two films left on their Technicolor contract which it in itself was an expensive method to use compared to black and white. The biggest issue with having to make two more color pictures was that audiences of the day by and large associated technicolor with the now out of vogue musical. RKO made their two technicolor films in 1931, The Runaround and Fanny Folly* herself. Neither was terribly successful. Joseph P. Kennedy, wanting to get out of film to focus on politics, sold RKO the remainder of his film holdings in 1931, including the American chapter of Pathé Exchange, which had shifted its focus to creating newsreels after Kennedy had sold FBO. All contracted players of Pathé, including its most popular performers of the time, Constance Bennett, Anne Hardy, and Helen Twelvetrees, as well as its studio and backlot, were included in the sale. With that, Joseph P. Kennedy left his Hollywood career behind for one in politics. While the acquisition of Pathé was a smart one for RKO, especially when considering the facility assets they acquired, it was still a hefty expense for the young studio, as RKO also recently acquired a 50% share in the New York animation company Van Buren.
0: We'll start Monday week, fresh and fair, with two freighters, one with a printing outfit and the other with the household goods. Why, we can make it in nine days.
1: I forbid it.
0: You're going to stay here with your father, and mother, and decent civilization. I've heard enough. I'm going with him. Ah, that's it, honey. Why we've had enough of this, Wichita. We're going out to a brand new two-fisted, rip-snorting country full of Indians, rattlesnakes, gun-toters, and desperadoes. Whoopee!
1: A New York jazz drummer by the name of Murray Spivak was hired by RKO in the early days in order to finesse sound recording technology for the studio. Spivak would go down in history as one of the fathers of motion picture sound. He set to work in a tin barn on the studio lot, and his innovations included creating the sounds of wind, a giant gorilla, dinosaurs, and the ability to provide playback. Unsurprisingly, Spivak would win eight Oscars throughout his career. Since early talkies were largely based on stage plays and musicals, and the early ones certainly looked it when one looks at the blocking of actors who were typically arranged in straight lines when speaking with each other, it became readily apparent that the style of sound films would have to be completely reinvented from those of the silent era and even from the early days of sound. One of RKO's biggest early disasters involved 1931's The Gay Diplomat, starring the Russian-born Ivan Lebedeff, in which they experimented with new blocking techniques. The producer of the film quit on the first day of its production and was replaced by a young member of the editing department named Pandro Berman, who would one day run the studio. RKO knew it was a disaster from the get-go and that Lebedeff was no film star. When they previewed the film, they were surprised to receive about 150 preview cards from the audience, all praising Lebedeff's performance. To no one's surprise, the cards had all been filled out by Lebedev himself, who had stolen the originals from the editing department. One positive thing that came out of 1931 for RKO was the film Cimarron. A story editor by the name of Kay Brown had read the book and persuaded RKO to spend $50,000 to acquire the picture rights. Cimarron depicted the history of the western frontier and was one of the first films to take the western film genre seriously. The film features a land rush which required 2,000 people, 2,500 horses, and was shot in one day using multiple camera angles. To this day, it is still one of the most epic scenes ever captured for motion pictures. Released under the short-lived RKO Pathé, the film was not a financial success during its domestic release, but it was the first and only RKO Pathé film to win the Academy Award for Best Picture, as the RKO Pathé banner would be abandoned the following year. Unfortunately for RKO, films like The Gay Diplomat were becoming the rule rather than the exception for the young studio, and RKO was gaining a reputation for producing mediocre films. To combat this image, and hoping to become more financially viable, Sarnoff brought in producer David O. Selznick. At 29, Selznick was already a veteran of MGM and Paramount, when Sarnoff hired him to replace the Baron. One of Selznick's first acts in his new role, to save money, was to exploit the star system. The employees of RKO were told to scout for any potential talent that the studio could sign to their roster. This was how Selznick found a young Catherine Hepburn, who was, at the time, finding great success on the New York stage. Catherine was not one to be taken for a ride, however, as she knew many actors who'd gone to Hollywood, only to end up as one in a sea of a thousand faces. The savvy young actress worked out an agreement with the studio, including her salary, before her feet ever touched Hollywood soil. Her first film with RKO was alongside John Barrymore in A Bill of Divorcement in 1932. There's no denying, even back then, that Hepburn was a star. She would win her first Oscar during her RKO years for Morning Glory. Selznick also didn't like the conveyor belt style films were made, so one of the first things he did was to do away with a centralized producing system. With a centralized producing system, the producer, or studio head or supervisor, and the production department took over what had originally been the director and cameraman's responsibilities when it came to selecting the type of product, production processes, etc. Selznick felt this cheapened films and wanted to give back power to the directors in order to give them more creative freedom. He believed that doing this would increase quality and cut costs. And he was right. Selznick managed to make 41 films at 30-40% to 40% less cost than RKO's prior 42 films, about $10.6 million versus $16 million respectively. But it wasn't enough. 1932 still saw a loss of $10 million for RKO. Selznick left RKO soon after, only spending 15 months at the studio after creative disputes with the new corporate president caused him to leave because RKO could not escape the debt it had been in before David O'Sell's next tenure. By 1933, coupled with the continuing economic turmoil brought on by the Great Depression, RKO fell into receivership, which occurs when the property or assets of an institution or enterprise is held by a person usually associated with a financial institution, not on the company's payroll, and assumes responsibility for the property and assets to prevent that company from going bankrupt. RKO would remain in receivership until 1940.
0: Hear the beast and hear the beauty. She has lived through an experience no other woman ever dreamed of. And she was saved from the very grasp of Kong by her future husband. I want you to meet a very brave gentleman, Mr. John Driscoll. And now before I tell you the full story of our voyage, I'm going to ask the gentlemen of the press to come forward so that the audience may have the privilege of seeing them take the first photographs of Kong and his captors. All right, boys. (laughs) Just narrow first alone. Stand in front of me, All set, Jack? Okay. Make it a good one. Shoot. be alarmed ladies and gentlemen those chains are made of chrome steel
1: after david o selznick left rko marion c cooper a former aviator and explorer who had been a recruitment of selznick's manned the helm as the head of production in the hopes of saving rko Cooper had previously specialized in making wildlife films that were incredibly popular with audiences. Cooper had also dreamed up the idea of a giant monkey whom would wreak havoc on New York City. Cooper would pitch his idea for the film that would eventually be called King Kong to Selznick while he had still been head of production for RKO. Originally intended to be shot on location using a real gorilla, Cooper altered course when he saw the work of Willis O'Brien, a pioneer in stop motion animation. If you don't know what stop motion is, think the Wallace and Gromit cartoons or Coraline. In the most basic of terms, models are positioned, photographed, moved slightly, photographed, and so on until the series of images creates one fluid moving picture. O'Brien had been working on this system for years, and Cooper saw an opportunity to make his King Kong come to life using O'Brien's new method. The film was innovative in almost every sense of the word, from special effects to sound design. The iconic scene of King Kong scaling the Empire State Building is, to this day, one of the most iconic images in all of cinema. When the film debuted in New York... Lines formed around the theater in order to see the film. Ticket prices were increased as well from $0.35 to $0.75, and the film sold out every one of its 10 shows a day for four consecutive days. Within those four days, the film grossed nearly $90,000, a record for indoor events at the time.
0: My dignity, it makes me lose my poise, some folks call it music, my folks call it noise. I like music, old and new, what music makes me do the things I never should do, oh, I like music, sweet and blue, what music makes me do the things I never should do.
1: With Cooper as the newly appointed head of production, his main goal was to save the studio from financial ruin. His solution? To make one film per week. At the time, hundreds of low-budget films were being churned out each year by the amateur directors and screenwriters. RKO attempted to pad out their schedule by making similar films on their backlot. Cooper also oversaw the first pairing of the iconic Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers in Flying Down to Rio. The film is probably best known for a sequence in which dancers perform on the wings of a plane. While the duo was fourth-billed, within a couple of years, the Astaire and Rogers team-up would be the most famous duo in all of motion pictures. They would make seven films altogether for RKO. RKO became known during this time as a designer studio. It never had stable talent or major names in its roster, but what it did thrive in was its picture's high art styles. Archaea was not afraid of chaos, as was apparent with their screwball comedies, which, in addition to Columbia Pictures, it became known for at this time. They also experimented with optical effects and optical film transitions, audio playback for musicals, and rear projection. Cooper also produced Betty Davis's first successful feature of Human Bondage in 1934. Future master of the Western film John Ford won Best Director, the only film of Archaeos to receive this particular honor, with the film The Informer.
0: Quiet, young lady, I'm going to get to you later. I want you to tell me the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Well, what did my aunt say? Be quiet, please. <laughs> what did my aunt say? Your aunt? Why, she said, now, young lady, you haven't got an aunt. But I certainly have got an aunt. Quiet, quiet, please. Now, look here, young fella. I want you to tell me just exactly what were you doing tonight. Well, we were hunting uh, for a leopard. uh, You were hunting for a leopard. Mm -hmm. Now, 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 now look here. Look here, young lady. Now, you know, that's silly. There never was a leopard in the whole state of Connecticut. Well, there is now. Yeah. Now, young lady, listen here. I'm going to stay here if it takes all year. I am waiting for you to tell the truth. Oh, if you're going to wait for her to tell the truth, you'll have a long, gray beard down to here. You know, it's a funny thing. My grandfather had... Quiet, young man. Listen, I don't want any more slick remarks out of you. this is a jail, I want you to have a little respect for the law. I'm just trying to explain, Mr. Constable. You see... It, it all started over at my aunt... at her aunt's house. Her Was aunt's it? house, yes, yes. yes. <clears throat> you see, her aunt promised to give me. Oh, yeah, a. Now, hold on. Hold on, on there, bub. Just a minute. She hasn't got an aunt. I certainly uh, have. She's my father's sister. Now, look here, constable. Come over here. Stop wasting <clears throat> your time. Now, it's quiet. Yeah, 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 now, look yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. You want us to get out of here, don't you? Oh, lady, yes, I certainly do. Well, now, I gave you my aunt's telephone number, didn't I? Yep. And you called her up, didn't you? I sure did. And what did she say? Well, <clears throat> She said that you were home in bed. Then what am I doing here? Well, you're here because you're you're, you're, you're your aunt. She said, oh, confound it, lady, you know
1: that you have... Marion Cooper left RKO in 1935 after two years as the head of production and with the studio in the green for the first time since its foundation seven years prior. He was replaced by Samuel Briskin. In October of that year, the ownership of RKO expanded to include industrialist and financier Floyd Oldham who acquired a 50% stake. Additionally, the Rockefeller brothers, who also owned a decent chunk of RKO, became more hands-on with the struggling production company. It was also during this time that Cary Grant and Barbara Stanwyck joined the RKO lineup. Grant, one of the first freelancing actors in his early days, meaning he was not under a contract from a studio, found relative success at RKO. And while the studio was struggling to figure out how to fully utilize Katherine Hepburn, in 1936, Howard Hawks joined the RKO staff and made 1938's Bringing Up Baby, starring Katharine Hepburn and Cary Grant. The film was marketed as, quote, the screwiest of all screwball comedies. The film was a monumental failure, so bad that RKO immediately fired Hawks. Today, ironically, Bringing Up Baby is considered one of Hawks' masterpieces. This film would also be the last Hepburn would make for RKO. In the grand scheme of things, one of the best deals RKO probably did was partnering with a still relatively young Walt Disney to distribute his films. Disney had previously worked with animation company Van Buren, which RKO had recently stopped distributing for, to instead focus on Disney's. RKO would distribute Disney's films from 1937 to 1956, releasing all of their shorts and features until Disney decided to start their own distribution company, Buena Vista Pictures. The next victim for the job of RKO's head of production was Panjo Berman, who had filled in for the role on three prior occasions. While... Like those before him, Berman's tenure in this role would be a brief one, he oversaw the most profitable era of RKO. One of his most notable pictures was Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1939, which made his star out of stage actor Charles Lawton. He would be replaced not long after by George Schaefer, who had been handpicked by the Rockefellers
0: if I weren't too busy arranging to keep them. Here's one promise I'll make. And boss Jim Geddes knows I'll keep it. My first official act as governor of the state will be to appoint a special district attorney to arrange for the indictment, prosecution, and conviction a boss Jim W. Get
1: his. 1939 saw the hiring of a 25-year-old radio man by the name of Orson Welles. Two years later, the film widely regarded as Welles' masterpiece, and considered by many film historians and the American Film Institute to be the greatest film of all time, Citizen Kane was released by RKO. Telling the fictionalized story of a media tycoon, the film infuriated William Randolph Hearst, on whom Wells had partially based the main character. Hearst banned any review of Citizen Kane from being printed in his newspapers. 1941 saw an additional agreement with Samuel Goldwyn Studios to distribute their films, but RKO also lost its last bankable star, Ginger Rogers. Fred Astaire had left a couple of years earlier. In 1942, there was yet another change of hands as the head of production became Charles Kerner. Kerner had taken over a controlling interest in the company, edging out both the Rockefellers and Sarnoff. This shakeup resulted in the eventual firing of Orson Welles, whom at the time had been in Brazil, working on a project for RKO called It's All True, a documentary to celebrate the dignity of work and the cultural and ethnic diversity in America. Norman Rockefeller had been the film's biggest advocate, and with him gone, so was Wells, who only managed to finish one section of his film. Orson's prior film with the studio, The Magnificent Ambersons, was also taken over by the studio, who finished the film into what the studio considered a commercial format, completely changing Wells' vision. To add insult to injury, years later, Wells would claim that RKO's new slogan when Kurner took over, quote, showmanship in place of genius, a new deal at RKO, was a direct dig at him.
0: You and I should work together. You mean we would sell the bodies to the doctors together? To dig them up? There'll be no digging. The kirkyards are too well guarded. We will, so to speak, burk them. Burke then? You're lately come to Scotland, Joseph. Uh, I come from Lisbon. But you may have heard the chapbook singers and peddlers of verse cry their names down the street. You know, the ruffian dogs, the hellish pair, the villain Burke, the meager hare. Never heard the song. What did they do? Eighteen people they killed and sold the bodies to Dr Knox. Ten pounds for a large, eight for a small. That's good business, Joseph. Uh, Where did they get the people? That was Hare's eggs. Oh, you should have seen him on the streets when he saw some old Beldame deep in drink, how he cozened her. Good day to you, Madam Tospot. And would you like a little glass of something before you take your rest? Come with me to my house and you shall be my guest. You shall have quarts to drink if you like. Ha <laughs> How he cozened them. We can do that. But when he gets them there... Then what? Nor did they handle axe or knife to take away their victim's life. No sooner done than in the chest they crammed their lately welcome guest. I don't understand the song. Tell me plain how they did it. I'll show you how they did it, Joseph. I'll show you how they...
1: Charles Kerner actually brought stability to what had been a relatively unstable studio. RKO saw profits almost immediately, from a mere $736,000 in 1942 to nearly $7 million in 1943. The Rockefellers and RCA sold off their remaining stock this same year. RKO's B-movies thrived during World War II. In fact, it was one of the things that kept the studio afloat. Val Luton, the head of the horror department at RKO, was the mastermind of many of these, including the ultra-popular Cat People, a film about a woman who believes she's a descendant of an ancient line of cat people whom turn into panthers when aroused. Luton had been a novelist in his younger years and churned out picture after picture for RKO. The films had to follow three criteria. Luton and his team got to name the picture, it had to cost no more than $150,000, and be less than 75 minutes in length. It was not unusual for the films to recycle sets from other RKO pictures. Putting their B-movie spin on the horrors of war, RKO found relative success with films like Hitler's Children, The Master Race, Behind the Rising Sun, and Tender Comrade starring Ginger Rogers. Tender Comrade was seen by some as having some radical, some would say communist, ideology that got the writer, Dalton Trumbo, in hot water when the war came to an end. Arkeo's other popular genre at this time was Westerns, many including a young Robert Mitchum, until he entered the war himself. James Warren was brought in to replace the roles that Robert Mitchum had played to ensure that the pipeline of Western films would continue to churn out of the studio. After the war, RKO made several films that dealt with the social unrest and the fallout from war. Robert Mitchum had returned to RKO and starred in Till the End of Time, playing a cowboy that returned to a very different America than the one that he had left before the war. Directed by Edward Dmytryk, Dmytryk continued his hot streak with a new style of films, a style that would become known as film noir, with Farewell, My Lovely, which was based on the novel by Raymond Chandler. By 1946, RKO saw its most profitable year, making $12 million. 1946 also saw the death of the man that made it happen. Charles Kerner passed away of leukemia earlier that year.
0: Are you now, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Chairman, yeah. uh, first I should like to know whether the quality of my last answer was acceptable, since I am still on the stand. This had nothing to do with your last oh, answer I or the last question. This is a new question. I now. see Mr. Struggle, you must have some reason for asking you, me this question. You, you can address the group. You do. I understand that the members of the press have been given an alleged Communist Party card belonging to me. Is that true? No, that's not true. You're not asking the question. I was. The chief investigator's are asking the I question. Now, are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I believe I have the right to be confronted with any evidence which supports this question. I should like to see what you have. Oh, well, you would. Yes. Well, you will pretty soon.
1: In 1947, the House of Un-American Activities Committee had set its sights on Hollywood, believing that communists had infiltrated their midst. Director Edward Dimitrik and screenwriter Adrian Scott, current members of the RKO roster, were subpoenaed to testify in front of the committee. Their careers, as well as those of eight other members of Hollywood's elite, were destroyed in the ensuing hearings and the eventual creation of the Hollywood blacklist. The Hollywood Ten, a group of the loudest opponents of the proceedings, were barred from working at all major studios unless they complied with the committee. Despite all of the damage done, no proof of communist infiltration into American films has ever been definitively proven. The Hollywood Blacklist destroyed the film industry, leading to a decade of mediocrity and safe films. In May of 1948, in a move described at the time as the biggest motion picture transaction since 20th century absorbed Fox, aviation tycoon and famous eccentric Howard Hughes purchased enough of RKO's stock to gain control of the studio. At first, nothing seemed to change, but Hughes, known for his eccentric flare-ups, wouldn't remain dormant for long. Famously conservative, he was known for being hostile to liberals, something Hollywood had no shortage of. Hughes hired Kemp Niver, an employee of the DA's, to create a file for every member of RKO that made over $1,500 per week. Hughes wanted to know everything he could about the men and women that now found themselves under his employ, especially their political party, how they spent their money, and where they socialized. Hughes was the first of the Big Five to settle the U.S. v. Paramount ruling of 1948 by dissolving the original parent company, Radio Keith Orpheum Corp., and split RKO's production, distribution business, and its theaters into two entirely separate corporations, RKA Pictures Corp. and RK Theaters Corp. While he delayed the sale of the theater corporation for two years after the ruling and held on to his stock in the company for an additional three, Hugh's complete and utter compliance with the ruling was a major contribution in the death of the Hollywood studio system. As the hearings continued and more and more members of Hollywood found themselves in the hot seat, the Hollywood Ten evolved into a list of hundreds of names known as the Blacklist. Hughes took it upon himself to removing the credits of those named on the lists from RKO films dating back to 1931.
0: I told you my name. What's yours? Mine's Gilbert Bowen. He's Roy Collins. What do you do for a living? I'm a draftsman. He runs a garage. That makes you smarter. Or does it? all over that windshield I got lucky it hit an empty chamber i had to use it a while back now don't make any more fast moves i told you the last guy made that mistake
1: if all of this didn't sound appealing let me tell you howard hughes puts any bad boss you've ever had to shame for hughes rko was a fancy new toy He was already famous for his airplane escapades, his directorial debut with 1930s Hell's Angels, TWA Airlines, and at the time of purchasing RKO, the recent failure of the Spruce Goose, Hughes' attempt to build the largest military equipment carrier in the world. With Hughes at the helm, RKO saw its worst year since the 1930s. Hughes had canceled many of the films that his predecessors had greenlit and was notorious for nitpicking every element of a film without ever stepping on the RKO backlot personally. He was especially controlling when it came to the actresses. One of Hughes's early moves when he bought RKO was acquiring contract actresses. James Russell, whom had had a personal contract with Hughes before RKO, was now a staple for the studio. As a young actress, Jane Greer had been under a personal contract with Hughes, but left him by getting married and had later joined RKO before Hughes had purchased the studio. When Hughes purchased RKO, he informed Greer that while she would remain on payroll, she would not make a single film. Hughes believed that these contracts somehow meant that he owned the actual women. He attempted to give his female talent bungalows that he owned to live in, proposed marriage to several, even the married ones, and was known for showing up to the dates of the unmarried ones. Starting in 1952, RKO was bombarded with lawsuits, including a screenwriter that Hughes had removed from the credits of a film after he was caught up in the Huex screenings. He was additionally sued by the Screenwriters Guild and actress Jean Simmons. Additionally, the studio lost $10 million that year and only made one film in the last five months of the year. Hughes sold his RKO stock off briefly in September 1952 to a Chicago company before reacquiring it five months later after learning that the company he sold it to was involved in organized crime. Samuel Goldwyn Mayer terminated its distribution deal with RKO after 11 years. Disney followed in 1953. The minority stockholders in RKO sued Hughes over selling his shares in 1953, leading Hughes to buy all the remaining RKO stock in 1954, becoming the first man to outright own a film studio. Now in complete control of RKO, Hughes oversaw expensive flop after expensive flop, broken up by very few well-received films. The studio became a laughingstock. As Hughes's mental state deteriorated, he had persistent headaches that were believed to stem from two near-fatal plane crashes years earlier, as well as increasingly erratic behavior, an out presented itself. In 1955, General Teleradio announced its wishes to purchase the back catalog of the RKO films to show on television. Hughes made it clear if they wanted to do this, they would have to buy the entire company, including the studio's backlot. The deal went through, and RKO Teleradio went on to make films for another couple of years that were widely forgotten, most of them remakes of old RKO films. RKO would shut down its production and then its domestic distribution exchange in January of 1957. Distribution was taken over by Universal International, which is Universal Studios today. The studio facilities were sold to Desilu Productions for about $6 million, the production company of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Ball had been a contract player for RKO from 1935 to 1942. Today, the Hollywood facilities belong to Viacom. RKO was completely dissolved in 1959, but was reconstituted in 1978. Collaborating with Universal, the studio put out 15 films and television shows in the 1980s before selling the company to Pavilion Communications in 1989, whom renamed the entity RKO Pictures, LLC. Since 1990, 15 films have been released under this banner, primarily as co-productions. While the RKO as it once was is gone, its legacy, for better and worse, lives on forever in its films.
0: What is this I see? Just playing with Cidano. Playing? You were working him with a cape. What's wrong with that? You know better. No animal or nerdler is faster than a fighting bull. He must never be played with a cape. He will know where the cape is and where the matador's body is before he ever enters the ring. Then, when his time comes to enter the ring, he will not be a true straight charging bull as contracted for. He will be an assassin. He will be a murderer. It is against the law. I don't want Itano to go to the ring. We can't sell him to the ring. But now, naturally, when, when he's four years old and has come to his full strength, of course he goes into the ring. That's what he was born for, son. That's his reason in life, to fight. But that wasn't my reason when I brought him home. Just the baby, no
1: bigger than this.
0: Don't trouble yourself about it. You will grew out of it, and so will he, done.
1: This concludes our histories of the big five studios of Hollywood's golden age. I did my best to include as much as possible, but of course this is only a scratch of the surface. I do my best to fact check everything as well as I can, so if there's anything I got wrong, please let me know and I can correct it on a later episode. All of my sources, as well as a list of recommended viewing, is available in the show notes. Please keep in mind that the availability posted on the recommended viewing is based on an American market. If you'd like to see corresponding images from this week's episode, you can see them on social media, on Twitter at Tinsel underscore Factory, on Instagram at Tinsel Factory Pod, or on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory. If you want to send me an email, you can do so at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. Next month, for October, is the Universal Monster Mash. Next week, we're covering the OG bloodsucker himself, Dracula. Thank you so much for listening and sticking with me this far. And until next time, that's a wrap.
0: Hooray for Hollywood. They hire fellas whose physiques are good. And then they tell them they're the perfect cake men to act like cake And they convince them they should. They make them crack and yell. Oh, 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 oh. and people think as well. Oh, 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 hooray for Hollywood. It really got me. Hooray!